Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the life of one of the judges. And Mike, maybe we should start, first of all, by asking you to explain what, what who the judges were. Well, what they absolutely weren't is what we think of as judges today. You know, someone with a wig sitting in a court, though they may have had some element of that. The judges is the name that's given to the tribal leaders that followed after the period of history in, in Israel's history. When Joshua dies, he has no obvious successor, like he was the successor to Moses. And in fact, after his death, Israel operates more like a sort of tribal confederacy, all the different tribes doing their own thing, occasionally coming together when there's some need. And the judges were men, and in one case, we know of at least one woman, Deborah, who were empowered by God's spirit for a particular season and a particular period to lead God's people into victory when they were attacked by enemies. So they were really spontaneously empowered leaders rather than judges in our legal sense, though some of them, not all, did exercise some sort of judging function as well. I mean, how did they come to be in existence? I mean, who who decided that judges were necessary? Well, one of the interesting things is at the end of the book of Joshua, which we looked at in a previous episode, there's a really interesting verse. It says in, in Joshua 24, the people of Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, those who'd personally experienced all that the Lord had done for Israel. So it's like they're they're following the Lord and following in the ways that Moses and Joshua have taught them. Joshua dies, the elders who've worked with him died. And this really looks like a case of bad transitioning. You know, there was there was no succession plan. So really, who decided? God decided. Um, these people were left helpless, and it's when they called out to God that God's spirit came upon a really quite wide variety of people, some of them quite wrong characters, we'll see, which reflects the bad condition that Israel descended into over this period. Mm -hmm. So they weren't voted. They weren't there by succession. God's spirit simply came on chosen people from the different tribes when different needs arose. So these were very much upfront people, leading the people, people looked to them, etc. So the first one we're going to look at is... Gideon, that you can read about in Judges chapter 6 and and on from there, Uh, this leader, this person that people were going to look to, where where do we find him in the Bible story? Well, you can find all about Gideon from Judges chapter 6 onwards. So he's one of 12 judges. Um, Scholars often talk about six major judges and six minor judges. The major and minor is really to do with the amount of space that's given them in the story. And they come from the scattered 12 tribes. So at this point in Israel's history, we're really not thinking of Israel as a whole nation. Um, They're very much each of the tribes doing their own thing and only ever coming together when there is need. And Gideon uh, was someone who came from right in the heart of the country, from the tribe of Manasseh, which had that sort of central area. 
And he came from there, and he was one of the people that God called when Manasseh and some of the other tribes started to get in trouble with some of their enemies around about. Where was he physically when the story begins? Well, uh, we find him under a tree. <laughs> right, okay. Which is interesting. Just to set the background a little at this point, this whole period of, of history is very much a period where herders who lived out in the wilderness and in the desert kept bringing raids into the farming areas, and Israel was one of those. And in chapter 6, we find one of those raids from the tribal people. It's actually uh, from the people known as the Midianites, and the Midianites came from way down south by uh, what we would now call the Gulf of Aqaba from that desert region. Mm -hmm. And every spring, you know, they would do a raid along with some of the otherites who are mentioned uh, in this story. Uh, the Amalekites are another one who appear from the east. And they're doing a raid. They're, they're coming to steal what they can. They're coming to uh, take over the waterholes and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And... As these raids start to happen, and that's pretty consistent of this period, by the way, what we get in this whole period is Israel slowly turning away from God. Um, it, it's a period of real complacency, and they get themselves into a cycle. In a previous episode, we talked about the temptation of the Canaanite religions, mm. Baal, and the highly sexualized religion that was, and how that was very attractive to a sort of worldly sort of thinking. Mm. And they would get attracted to these Canaanite religions, start to give themselves to them and begin to turn away from Yahweh or at least try and have a bit of Yahweh and a bit of what they could offer as well. And so the book of Judges tells us whenever they started to turn away from the living God, God would allow one of these raiding tribes to come and attack them. And the purpose was not to be unkind to them, but it was to say, hey, wake up, guys, come on. You're supposed to mm. be looking to me. Mm. And then as they get in a mess, they cry out to God, and God would send them a deliverer. And, and Gideon would turn out to be one of those. Right. And then this mighty anointed leader would lead them into victory, and all the Israelites would say, oh, God, we love you. We worship you. Thank you so much. We'll, we'll follow you forever. Oh, ooh, that's a nice Baal. Mm. And they'd wander mm. off again. And this period that we're looking at here in the book of Judges, you know, we, we just read a few chapters, but it covers over 300 years. Wow, right. So history was literally repeating itself. It's literally repeating itself. And even worse than repeating itself, you know, it, going round in circles, it was going round in circles downhill. Mm. So it was going in a downward spiral. So we find through the book of Judges just things getting worse and worse and worse and darker and darker, which is why by the end of the book of Judges, God is using a man like Samson, not because he's a great character, but it's almost like the best he can find in those days. Right. So what worries me is that this Gideon figure is under a tree. He's under a tree and uh, he's minding his own business and uh, an angel of the Lord appears, as they often seem to do at this point in Israel's history. He's he's actually threshing some wheat. But what he's having to do is threshing some wheat in a wine press hidden away. Wine presses are always like down in the ground. Okay. And 
is he's hiding, which gives ah. us an insight into the sort of guy he was. <laughs> this is not a brave guy. He's he's hiding from the Midianites, trying to keep his head down. Right. When suddenly he has this encounter with the angel of the Lord, who to this man who's hiding from the the Midianites comes up and says, "Hail, mighty hero! The Lord is with you." Mighty hero. That's exactly the words that he uses, which is really weird because at the moment he seems to be anything but a mighty hero. Looks like a bit of a coward, actually. Well, he does, doesn't he? And even as the story unfolds, we're going to see he's not the bravest of men. And how he responds to this angel of the Lord coming is when he's told the Lord is with you. He starts to ask questions, perhaps a question that many listeners have heard at times. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? God's really with us. Why has stuff gone wrong in our life? And then his next thing is, where are all the miracles that our forefathers taught us about? And that's really interesting. It's like there were still stories of what had gone on in Israel's history before, but they'd, they'd lost relationship with the living God and they weren't experiencing for themselves. And one of the worst places to be in terms of faith with God is to have other people's stories about what God has done in the past, but but no reality and experience of that for yourself. And that's mm. where Gideon seemed to be, but he knew it, which is the good thing. Many of his contemporaries just didn't know that. But he was supposed to be the, the, the man for the moment. He was supposed to be the man for the moment, but he takes some convincing of it. So in fact, what happens in chapter six is um, this angel of the Lord gives him a sign. He says, you know, if you're truly gonna help me, give me a sign. And it, it won't be the first time he asks for that. And so he makes this offering and he cooks a lamb and he brings the broth and the angel says, pour the broth on the, the offering that you've just made. And then this angel of the Lord reaches out his staff and touches it. And the whole thing goes up in flames. You think, wow, here is the power of God. And the first thing he says, oh my goodness, Lord, I'm doomed. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. I'm going to die. And the Lord replies to me, no, you're not going to die. You know, God is here with you. And he builds an altar at that place called Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. He understands that something's happened that's ensured there's peace between him and the living God. And, and, and then the angel gives him a, a commission to do. He says, look, you know, if, if, if you're going to follow the living God, there's some stuff we have to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And we've talked in previous episodes about Baal and the way that this is the pagan god. He was the god. god of the Canaanites at the time, mm -hmm. uh, a fertility god. And so that was expressed in highly sexualized worship, as we said. And uh, he, he's, he's told to go home and cut down the, the family shrine to this god. Now, if you can think about that, that's, that's a pretty big thing to do, isn't it? You're in the middle of a people who are... Mm starting to worship these gods. Yeah, they want a bit of the living God as well. Yeah, so he's going to spoil the party for a lot of people. He's going to spoil the party and he's going to get in trouble. So this mighty man of God, remember that's how God sees. Interesting, isn't it? God looks at us and sees what we are going to become mm. and speaks it now because he's not actually that yet. But, but God sees. I see something in you. I love how still today God sees something in us that we don't see in ourselves. He's potential. He sees that potential and he starts to call us up into it. And that's what he does with Gideon. Uh, and Gideon takes small steps, scared steps. He's still not in reality the mighty man of God because he does go and cut down these pagan symbols of his family. But you know what? 
it tells us that he did it by night because he was afraid of the rest of his family. So secretly in the night, he cuts down the symbol to Baal and to Asherah, who is his sort of his wife in the heavenlies, and does it by night so that no one knows who's done it. So he's sort of still not quite convinced that the message that has come to him is definitely for him. That's right. He's sort of testing the ground a bit, isn't it? Hmm. And the interesting thing is the next day, obviously they all wake up and see these symbols cut down and say, who's done this? Who's done this? And soon it comes out that it's Gideon who's done it. And they all go to his dad's father of the family and the clan. They say, bring out your son. He's going to have to answer for this. And it's interesting. His dad takes an interesting line. He said, hey, why are you defending Baal? If he's such a good God, cannot he defend himself? Uh, and from that point, Gideon actually was given a second name locally. Um, he was called Jerubal, okay. which means the one who contends, the one who strives with Baal. <laughs> And he won. So he actually got a reputation for what he did, actually, amongst his people. He did. And it's the beginning of God starting to draw out of this man what is in him, perhaps despite himself. What a great thing about God that, you know, he works despite us and despite our fears and steadily draws us on. So as well as sort of dealing with things at home, as it were, you, you were saying that these judges, these leaders, needed to deal with these sort of skirmishes and wars, really, that were going on, these battles. Yes. So in the end of Chapter 6, we find these raiders uh, from Midian and from Amalek, these desert people who often did raids uh, into Canaan, uh, the Midianites and the Amalekites uh, make an alliance and they, they come together, they cross the River Jordan and they camp in the Valley of Jezreel, that big valley in the central part of modern Israel today. Then we read this verse, then the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. Clothed Gideon with power. Yeah, it's quite a powerful image that, isn't it? It's like he wasn't even looking for it. The spirit of God simply falls on him. And this is one of the characteristics of this period. This is not a period where people have the Holy Spirit continually with them like Christians can today. This is a time when the Spirit comes and goes, comes and goes, and he falls on Gideon to empower him to lead God's people against these invading armies. And he, he blows a ram's horn and he calls people and he says, come on, God, if, you, if you're going to if you're going to lead me, I, I need a sign. I always think this is funny. This guy has had such an amazing sign already. You know, he's just had the angel of the Lord, mm. you know, <laughs> touch his offering with the staff and it's gone into flames yeah. and send him. And then he said, yeah, but Lord, if you're really with me, I, I need another sign. I, I suspect many of us can identify with that as we're often feeling our way forward. So he kind of is looking for another miracle. Or he's that. looking for another miracle. And he does it with um, with a fleece, with a, a sheep's fleece. Okay. And he says, right, God, listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to put this fleece down on the ground overnight. And obviously overnight you get dew, mm -hmm. don't you? And he says, you know, if tomorrow morning the fleece is wet, but the ground around it is dry, I'll know you're with me. <laughs> right. And God does it. <laughs> and what should we expect? And we say, yes, right, let's go. But rather he said, hmm. I think you're still with me, Lord. Okay, just one more, Lord. Right. So tonight I'm going to put the fleece out again, 
And this time, please let it be the other way around. Let the ground be wet with dew and let the fleece be dry. And in the kindness of God, he does it again. It, some Christians talk sometimes these days about putting out a fleece, mm. asking God for a sign. I think the interesting thing here, this is not a mark of faith. Actually, this is a mark of unbelief. Okay. God has already spoken. God's already given him an amazing miracle. And sure, he wants to know that God is really with him. But it's really a reflection of the fact this guy's faith is still pretty weak at this point, isn't it? Yeah. And he's still trying to either do things in his own strength or doesn't even believe that he's got the strength to do it. Yeah, that's right. So this is this, I'm trying to imagine, you see, this, this military leader, this, this leader of people against these, uh, these enemies, these invaders. Um, how does he take up the mantle? Well, he takes up the mantle by God taking up the mantle for him. <laughs> so much in this story is, is about God getting involved. So he starts to gather an army. The trouble is, when we talk about army these days, we think of, you know, people in uniforms and they're all well equipped. You know, this is a bit of a ragamuffin pull-together army spontaneously, more like a militia, perhaps, that's pulled together. Not many of them then, do you mean? There certainly weren't many of them by the time that God had finished. Okay. Because as he gathers all the people from his tribal regions, he suddenly finds God speaks to him in, in chapter 7 of Judges. And uh, he has this bunch of people, and God says, yeah, but you've, you've got too many warriors. Too many? How many did he have? Well, let's put it this way. 22,000 go home. <laughs> right, because there are thousands, thousands. Of, so he's got thousands who've gathered. Yeah. And God looks at this, and he says, you've got too many warriors. And if I let you all fight the Midianites, then I know what's going to happen, God says. You're all going to turn around and say, look at us, weren't we great? Aren't we a great army? So God says, say this to them, whoever is timid or afraid may leave and go home. 22,000 go. <laughs> so it doesn't tell you much about <laughs> their, their army, does it? Yeah. And it only left 10,000. So there's your answer. Originally, 32,000. Right. 22,000 go. Now, I think if I were him, I'd be thinking... Lord, you've just cut my army down by a third. I hope you know <laughs> what you're doing here. But God hasn't finished yet. So he's now got 10,000 and God speaks to him again and says, mm, still too many, Gideon. I think we need to get rid of a few more. So bring them down to the spring. Um, we're going to sift them a little bit more. The, the spring, and, you mean where, like where the, the, the water spring, where the, water where the animals uh, exactly. uh, go to drink? Yeah, yeah. and okay. he said... Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to see um, how they drink, whether they sort of just put their heads down to the water and lap it like an animal would, mm -hmm. or whether they sort of cut water in their hands and bring it up to their mouth. And the way that those so-called soldiers did that was going to determine whether they were in or out. It was. And in fact, do you know how many cupped the water? It tells us only 300 of the men <laughs> drank with their hands. If you think about it, there could be a point to that. You know, if you're bending down to the water, you're not attentive to what's going on. Those who took it in their hands could keep a lookout, see what was going on. So there is perhaps method to this. So suddenly, his army of 32,000 
is now reduced to just 300. Wow. And God says, yep, that's good. With those, I'm going to deliver Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And it's like God's wanting him to know, Gideon, this is not about numbers. This is about me. This is about you knowing that ah, Yahweh, the living God, can deliver you and your people. And they were going to be facing many, many more people against them. Many, many more. They were going to be vastly, vastly outnumbered. Frankly, from a sort of military strategic point of view, this was stupid. But then this was about God wanting him to know, Gideon, it's got to be me that does this. So the outcome then was, by the sound of it, success. He did win the battles. He did. And it was a very clever way um, that he does it because, you know, he he, does, he doesn't put his brain to bed and, and God doesn't ask us to do that. He, he goes down by night, has a little recce of the Midianite camp, sees what's going on there and overhears a couple of them having a dream. And we've talked in previous episodes about how important dreams were in the ancient world and how they saw them as, as God speaking and through this conversation that he hears the Midianite soldiers having he realizes that God in fact most definitely has given the enemy into his hand so once again here's a, a confirmation from God and what they do is by night he takes some of his men not even all of them a hundred of them they put torches inside pots so they're covered up. When they, you say torches? Uh, sorry, um, flaming torches. Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah, I've got yes. to be careful these days. Yeah, they <laughs> Indeed. They didn't have their uh, yeah. Duracell bunny batteries, did they? Other brands that are also available. <laughs> yes. um, so flaming torches inside these, these pots so they can't be seen, surround the army. Then suddenly he blows the trumpet. They smash their pots. And, of course, instantly it sounds like you're completely surrounded by, by thousands. And the Midianite army is thrown into complete disarray and you've got this in the middle of the night just as the watch is changing it says and so you've got this this chaos and this noise and these sudden lights and suddenly it says the lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other so they were just so caught off panicking. guard remember it's midnight yeah and suddenly you see a figure and you think we're being attacked and you stab and you oh no it's my friend john and yeah. god causes complete confusion yeah Chaos and the confusion. Chaos and confusion, and the enemy flees, and he's able to pursue them. Interesting that you said that he only took 100 of the 300. So whereas he thought he needed 32,000 at the beginning, his belief, as you said, in God enabling this to be yes. successful. It's um, interesting, isn't it? There's a, definitely a, a process going on here. and I think that's why I love this story, because... In many ways, Gideon's so much like many of us, starting out timidly, God says something about our lives, we hardly dare believe it. And little by little, stepping out with a mixture of faith and fear, slowly coming to a place of believing, you know, God can do this. And yeah, even just choosing a hundred. Eventually the others are called in, and eventually he calls for some of the surrounding tribes as well. To, to come and join the pursuit because what he really wants is not just them to flee. He wants them pushed out of the land completely. So they're going to chase them right across the River Jordan and make sure the whole jolly lot of them are pushed out of 
the land of the tribes of Israel once and for all. But there's this growing confidence that God can do it. Just go back to the point you made about the, the fleece, the sheep's coat that was put down. And that was actually maybe more a reflection of Gideon's unbelief, you said. Well, I think it was. For many Christians, sort of putting out a fleece is, is sort of one way of, of getting guidance. And hey, do you know what? I've done that at points in my life as well. But you're saying there's a slight danger with that. Well, if I not think careful. there is, because the more you look at this, the more you see this was not really an expression of faith. It was an expression of fear. He's had this powerful encounter with the angel of the Lord. God has spoken. He knows God has spoken. But then it's like, well, if you've really spoken, God, can you do this? And then he's not even satisfied with one fleece. He wants the opposite. And the trouble is with putting out signs for God is how many signs are enough? When have you come to the end? And if you get a sign, there's so much a danger of, oh, well, maybe it was just coincidence or maybe it was just this. But clearly in this context, the asking for a sign is really, in his case, a, an example of his still lack of trust rather than trust. God had spoken so clearly already. To ask for one sign, maybe. But to ask for it again the other way around. But I think it was also a reflection of one, his own timidity, his own character. But also, I think he was aware of the vastness of the task before him. You know, a task, we have a task that's just as big before us in many ways in the West in these days, particularly with with cultures that are now so opposed to Christianity and its values. There's a huge task, and I think we're aware of how it must have been for him. For him, it was a literal physical opposition of, a, of, of an enemy army that had come and invaded. And I, I think that's probably why he did it. But it's probably more about Lack of trust than trust, really. What did this journey, as it were, do for the faith of the people? You said previously that they'd sort of spiralled downwards and started to be influenced by pagan gods and worship the Baal god, etc., etc. And his father sort of said, well, if the Baal god is worth following, then the Baal god will look after himself, as it were. So here we are now further down the line, and there's been success. What are they seeing in, in Gideon? Well, what are they seeing in Gideon is they think here is a guy who can clearly lead us. And by the end of chapter eight, the end of his story, they actually want him to become their king. King. They want him to be their king. You know, they look at all the nations around. Why is it that all these nations are so strong and they're so weak? And they think, yeah, the, the thing is they've got a king. Look. And that will become very important when we get to the prophet Samuel and Israel's first king, Saul. That will be part of the background there. So they actually want him to be their king. In chapter 8, they, they come and say, be our ruler, be, be our king. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers because you've rescued us. In other words, not just monarchy, but hereditary <laughs> monarchy. And Gideon's really wise. He says, do you know what? I will not rule over you. The Lord, Yahweh, is your king. He's the one to rule over you. And it sounds as if it was going to end on such a strong note. And then he goes and does something a little 
silly because they bring him golden offerings and he makes a thing called an ephod. We're not 100% sure what it was, but it was like a, a priestly garment that was used often to try and discern God's will. And, oh, Gideon, why did you do that? At the end of his life, what we read that is as soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshipping the images of Baal. Ah, now, here we go again. And isn't this so true of people at times that they'll reach out to God and say, God, you know, if you hear me, I'll do this. And he does it and they're grateful, but it doesn't last long. Before long, they're going back to their old ways again. And that's what happened with Israel, this constantly downward spiral into ever-increasing darkness. So what do you draw out of the life of Gideon for us today? Probably a couple of things. One is, you know, it's so important that as God's people, when when we see God moving in our hearts and in our lives and in our nation, we, we're just so grateful and we, we don't have momentary, yeah, that's great, and then turn and forget. But I think the other thing from Gideon himself is, Never ever say that I'm the smallest, I'm the weakest, God can't use me, which is how the Gideon story starts when the angel of the Lord comes to him. You know, I'm just a little person in one of the smallest clans, in one of the smallest tribes. And is why, why me, Lord? God loves to use what the world thinks are small and insignificant people. We see that again and again in the Bible. And the story of Gideon tells us, listen, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, how insignificant you feel you are. If you will follow God and do whatever he tells you, God can use you to make a significant difference in your world today. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.